I just won the lottery for Into the Woods to get like front row seats <laughs> for the tour. <laughs> Wait, the one that you I just, just I'm so going gonna to go again tomorrow at two p.m. So oh my excited. God. That's yeah, so exciting. I can't wait. I, I, like it came out of nowhere because like I enter the lottery every single day because I'm like, it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah. It just like hasn't happened. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to buy a ticket. Like it's fine. And I saw it and it was amazing. It was great. And then of course, go figure. I won it today. And it was like, you're going to Into the Woods tomorrow, front row, 2 p.m. And I was like, let's go. <laughs> That's so exciting because this like you said that you weren't in to the woods, like you were not in like an into the woods fan. So like you weren't into so, into the woods. Tell me, Silas, you weren't into the woods, were you? Talk about that. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was Why one of those that? weird things, like kind of like Lame is, like I've still never seen that show. So yeah, I, I think I like loosely mm-hmm. heard some of the music. You, I remember on tour, you sent me the witch's rap. You showed me that. <laughs> I did. I had no context for it. I was like, what is this show? It it like popped back into my brain the first time I saw it on tour. I, w- I was thinking of you. I was like, Sue and the Witch's Rap. Yeah, because I think I used to do my Bernadette Peters Witch's Rap impression. She's like, she, she's like beans and the queens. <laughs> it was like my my brain was vibrating when that was happening live, but it was amazing. It's I also, insane. I'm a, I'm a big it's amazing. Fan, big fan of Stephanie J. Block. I'm like really losing it over her i love her so i i'm gonna get to see her again and see her with her husband sebastian in like front row it's just so exciting that's so, so exciting <laughs> and oh my god i do you know what the magic castle is in la not disney no no i went to the i got invited to the magic castle last night i went it's a private members only club and it's a literal castle in hollywood and you're not allowed to like use your phone in there like you can't take pictures or videos so like not a lot of people know like what's going on in there i mean they know because it's like a members club and people bring guests and stuff but i went in right and i was brought in as a guest so it was like open bar so everywhere you turn it's just like booze 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 and there's like really no windows it's very like vegas style like you can't really tell what time of day it is if it's dark if it's light outside the way i could describe the interior Stu. We have to find a way to get back in. Creepers, if you know somebody, if you want to have a one-on-one experience where you take Silas and Stu to the Magic Castle, you let us know. You contact management. You go in. It's like the Haunted Mansion. It's a maze. It's huge. It's like the Haunted Mansion before it was haunted, like in the the before times. Like there's no cobwebs. It's just like pristine and luxurious and dark and like beautiful and Tiffany shades and like very Vegasy, oh and everywhere you turn in this maze is a magician doing magic it's the magic castle Stop. all night it was just every you look over there it's like someone's doing like card tricks making things appear in people's wallets and then like, i saw a woman pull a rabbit out of a scarf i was like what <laughs> is going on it was so fun i wish i could have stayed longer oh my god so like is the clientele can you tell like the types of people that are members there or is it just a mixed bag? Well, they also have a really, really strict dress code. So I had to like bust out the suit and tie and like women have to wear like heels and gowns. Like you mm. you will not be let in if you're not dressed appropriately. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah. So it's very like old school and like all the women who were there who were like not chaperoning, but like guiding your experience. They look very like old school Vegas showgirl, like long gowns, huge blowouts. And they're like, come with me. Like, it's so, 
Uh, you would love it. I have to find a way to bring you there. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out. I need to. So the aesthetic is like 1940s Hollywood, sort of, yeah. or like even older. Well, the guy who had started, like the fat, one of the co-founders, he just passed away, I think, this year. Like he was pretty old. Um, and I think they were celebrating their 60th or I don't know if it was their 60th or 80th anniversary but yeah it looks like old school gentleman's club like hollywood like private club very very like ritzy you can tell there's an elevated clientele in there like men smoking cigars it's so so wild and magicians magic (laughs) that's honestly my nirvana is like (laughs) a a secluded kind of like secret place with booze <laughs> and magic and just weird weird stuff happening yeah <laughs> Stu, some of the magic in there i mean some of it you're like wow that's a really like sleight of hand like quick card trick some of it you're like yeah. impossible impossible like he was guessing what what was the craziest thing you saw oh god there were a few different things i mean pulling the rabbit out of the scarf was kind of like absurd because we were just like what like she was holding it was a thin like satin scarf and she just like bundled bundled it up and just pulled a rabbit out and we were like oh <laughs> there was a guy he was um calling up random people from the audience and he had like a little clipboard and he would like write something on it and then like zip it up in like this thing and tuck it in front of you i sat front row and he was like okay he was like think of an address that you've lived at in the past and like someone would and literally he he guessed it. He had written a day. Like weird stuff like that. He was like, anyone think of a color, think of a random color. And this girl, like, <laughs> thought she thought of a color and changed her mind in real time. She was like, so this is what she was thinking. She revealed it after. She was like, pink, no, sage green. But she like vocalized that. He had written down pink, scratched it out, sage green before she like oh. said this out loud. And we were like, there's no way. Like it was just okay. Wild. Normally, I'd be like that gave me chills, but I'm like, ew. <laughs> I don't want to know how. Ew. It's like it was just, uh, and the magicians were hot. They were hot. Well, they gotta be, baby. You're in LA. I know. I know. He can on those Vegas. Well, they were all like they kind of like come back and forth from like Vegas, I guess, because some of that they would intro them and they're like the magic, mysterious, like whatever from like his Vegas residency. So they just have like a revolving door of magicians. There's a restaurant in there. It was fabulous. It was fabulous. Chris Angel's just in the back, like chain smoking on his like <laughs> cater waiter shift. There was there was something really weird. <laughs> I mean, I, I felt like I could see Chris Angel there at any time. There was a lot of talk about David Blaine, but I don't think David Blaine would ever be at the Magic oh Castle. God, yes. David Blaine is wild. I forgot about David Blaine. <gasps> I didn't. I'm still thinking about David. <laughs> but yeah, that's Did what happened. Did one of them have like a scandal? Chris Angel or David Blaine? Yeah. Not that I could think. Should we look this up? Hold on. Yeah, I can't remember, but I feel like David Blaine scandal. <sighs> I was like, maybe we shouldn't do this. I was like, what if it gets dark? <laughs> I was just saying, it might get. Dark. I know. I was like, I don't want to. I know Chris Angel. I remember seeing a video, an old video of him, where something went wrong. One of his tricks went wrong. He was like trying to do okay. an escape from. It was him against him because he was like trying to do like an old school. Houdini escape under a tank and it like didn't something went wrong bad or something went wrong with his assistant and she was like trapped in there in the tank and (gasps) it's like a video of him like smashing the thing open it's from like a rehearsal it's like leaked footage 
That scares me so much. That's like that movie, The Prestige. Did you ever see that with like Hugh Jackman? Yeah, yeah. Christian Bale. Wow, that just like teleported me back in time. That's a millennial. That's some millennial stuff. That's right a that's there. a millennial. That might even that might even be older than millennial. That's like a deep cut. I know. Yeah. But yeah, that was my that was my like my two little things. Into the woods and the magic oh castle. I'm gonna find a way somehow. Creepers, again, if you if you know of a way to get us in there, because you have to be invited by someone who's like a VIP member. Right. Memberships are expensive. <sighs> I think one time when I was still living in New York, I went, well, I remember one time I tried to sneak into the Soho house when I was like mm-hmm. dirt poor, didn't know anybody and like literally walked up and they were like, no. <laughs> and, then, and then I went with a friend of mine that like grew up in New York and knew somebody and they got us in. And I mean, those places are re- like yeah, they're insane. They're like all these different rooms and like yeah. vibes and There's a few of them in LA. Super Yeah. Just but but Magic City sounds like that but Magic like Castle, yeah. Things to look Magic Castle. Magic. That but like things to actually look at. Cause like at Soho House, I felt like I was just looking at like hot people and which is great. But I was yeah. like, okay. Well, Soho House is <laughs> I've been to the Bryce has a membership at um the one in Beverly Hills. So he can go to any of them, but we go to that one sometimes. And every time I go there, I'm just like, I'm like blacked out by the idea of like, wait, th- I don't get a drink or anything. Like there's nothing like included. <laughs> it's so expensive. Yeah. I went there for their pride party last year. Um, we were the youngest people there. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just, everybody was like in their forties and fifties and up. And we were like, all right. So yeah, but this place is so much more your speed. Yeah. This is like way, way up your alley. Old oh God, Hollywood glamour. Yes. Give me give me a theme. Give me a story. Like, that's the thing. I just, those kinds of places like Soho House, I just know no matter how much money I ever make in my life, I don't think I fit in there. <laughs> I just, well, Bryce, was t- Bryce and I were you know? talking about it and he told me they just turned a profit for the first time. They've been around for 20 years, Soho House. They just turned their first profit. And I was like, what? business model is that how can like how can that happen how do your investors after like decade two is rolling around they're like yeah let's keep it going going. let's keep it going (laughs) anywho all right well i should get us back on track it's all my fault that like we got off track but i just had to tell you those two things and i wanted to share it on the air with you and the creepers um and hi everybody welcome back to creep time the podcast with silas dean and Stu. we're back Hi, Creepers. We have a very special episode teed up. And this one is interesting because this is a story that you knew better than I did before I went into the research. I think I had seen the picture. I had maybe heard the name. I did not know the story of Natalie Holloway very well at all. How much did you know? Like, how much do you remember from, like, the news when it first came out? I just remember my parents having that on like they knew that it was going to be on the news pretty much like 24/7 and I remember them having it on constantly and I think it was because I think I was texting you this that that was like one of the first times I think for our parents that they really had like a moment with our generation of like kids mm-hmm. that like we we were just on the cusp of like probably like growing up going to college going on away trips and like something went horribly wrong with this girl who was like just starting her life and I know. Oh, like very well 
loved and respected person. And like, I, I think it really shook our parents. That's what I remember about it. I, it's I mean, maybe I wasn't cognizant of it. I really didn't remember very much about it on the news when because it was 2005. Like I was pretty we were both like really young. So, yeah, I but it, I guess it must have been like the in-between case. When I think about high profile, like captures the attention of the country cases, I think of Casey Anthony. And I think of O.J. Simpson. So I guess this was the in-between. Yeah. Really? 2005? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean. I mean, um, I'm sure there are other like major high profile cases, but this is the one that stuck out to me where I was like, that's a big story. Yeah. You know, I always think of Natalie Holloway and like Elizabeth Smart in the same Yeah. Also one generation sort of took me until I was in like this like genre of true crime to like learn about i don't i think again i had seen pictures but i don't think i knew that story very well either i yeah i the fact that we're about to go back in time it feels like i'm about to go back in time because i like i was saying to you earlier i i did not look up anything because i just remember the dread of like hearing about it but that's really all i i mean i remember who the suspects are but the whole story it's really going to jog my memory yeah i mean i'll be honest researching it because i was going in blind was infuriating this is an infuriating case yeah it's it's awful it's just i mean it is a disappearance i should say for anybody who's not familiar with it at its base level it is a disappearance but there is quite a bit of circumstantial evidence to point to a clear culprit here which is really what made me so angry while reading it just thinking about her family and what they experienced and, you know, we're going to pa- unpack a lot of it. We'll do a full deep dive into the story, her backstory, what really went down in Aruba. Quickly before we do, I'll just go through the, sh- the spiel, order of business. For anybody who is not already following the podcast, please make sure that you are following or subscribe to Creep Time, the podcast. Make sure that you turn on the bell notification so you don't miss a beat. And if you would be so kind, Stu and I love reading reviews on Apple. You can also review on Spotify, but I prefer the Apple ones because they've just got a little more substance to them, you know, Um, but it does help us to grow much faster. So thank you so all so much for all of the support. And oh, my God, before I forget, I want to we were going to do a shout out for Avery After Dark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Well, I'm sure anybody who has been listening to Creep Time and who's like familiar with this, they're also familiar with Avery Ross because she is wildly talented. She's such a good storyteller and commentator in the true crime world and in the mystery world. And that's exactly what her podcast gives. So she is very similar to us because she covers like everything from sinister murder. She also does like mystery and supernatural. And she comes out with episodes every single week and unrelated, but I don't know if you feel this way about her too, but I think she has one of the most soothing voices to listen to. (laughs) When I hear her pod, it's so calming the way she tells these stories. Low key, her um album cover, like album art for her podcast oh, yeah. too, is like very soothing to me. It, it it gives a very different vibe. I feel like most of them, it ours does. included, were like, let's go like in for the scary. Hers is a little more like, let me inform you of something. Yeah, it's like pensive. I love it. Yeah, no, she's so wildly talented. So I I wanted to give her a shout out because I know she was going to mention Creep Time, the podcast on her podcast. So. If you haven't listened, please go check out Avery After Dark. Again, new episodes every single week. You can go listen now. And with that, shall we get into the top line (laughs) of our story? Should we get into our Southern accents? Sure. (laughs) Well, it's appropriate because 
the Holloways <sighs> are from Alabama. This is well, actually, you might have some more information on this because she wasn't born in Alabama, but I got confused because I saw two different pieces of research. One that I think mentioned she was from, let me see, Mississippi. And then I think another that mentioned she was from Tennessee and it was confusing me. So I'll, I'll bring up both, but to get into the top line for anybody who is not familiar with the story, Natalie Holloway's story is one that captured the nation back in 2005 because she was an 18 year old high schooler from Alabama who took a graduation trip with her school to Aruba, but she never made it back home. So while on the trip, the entire group was kind of, you know, closely monitored by their chaperones. There were only about seven on this trip. Everything had run smoothly until we get to the very last night of the trip and the following day when everyone is supposed to leave and go back to the States. Natalie was nowhere. She was never found. So there was an immediate investigation that started to fill in some of the gaps of the story, suggesting that Natalie had left the night before when she disappeared with three men from a bar who were around her age. And from there, the story gets very murky about what really happened to this girl. Would you say that's a pretty fair, that kind of encapsulates the top line horror of. That's what I remember. It's a nightmare (sighs) scenario. Like, mm-hmm. but that's like, it gets nerve wracking. I can imagine how nerve wracking it must be for parents to give your kids a little bit of freedom because I'll get into the backstory of Natalie, but she's so like, she's an ideal kid to go on a trip like this, like wicked responsible, really smart. Right. So we'll get into it in a bit, but I, from everything I read, I was like, I don't think this was like, you know, she like overdrank or like got overserved and like fell into the wrong hands. I think something really, really insidious happened. I think she might have been drugged. Yeah, I I think I've always had that same hunch too. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into our suspects in a bit, and I know this is going to make everyone kind of upset. But let me give you some backstory. I'll go back and just talk a little bit about who Natalie was. So, for a bit of background and context, um. On the trip, Natalie, or sorry, before the trip and who she was, she was born October 21st, 1986. So this made her 18 at the time of her disappearance. And like I said, I found these two separate sources, one claiming that she was from or she was born in Mississippi and then the other mentioned Memphis. Um, But eventually what does happen, I think her parents divorced in 93. And by 2000, her mom remarried and the family all relocated and they moved in with the stepfather. And that was in Mountain Brook, Alabama. So Natalie, she attended Mountain Brook High School, where she was described as an extremely promising student. I feel like this is what the news covered a lot in the beginning on her case from what I saw, like straight A student, Mm pre-med, graduating with honors in 2005, like really outgoing social, like stand-up kid. Like she was a smart and level-headed person. So she had her sights set on the University of Alabama, where I don't know if you knew this, she got a full-ride scholarship. Do you know that? At that, I now that you say that, it kind of jogs my memory. I can't say for sure that that like if you gave me a pop quiz, if I would have recalled that. Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely remember everybody saying just like how intelligent and like on the right path she was. And I remember so vividly that like photo that they always shared of yeah. her. Well, there were a couple. It's like her senior like picture, kind of her senior picture mm-hmm. with the black um off the shoulder. And then I want to remember say, it. Yeah, she. Like she's in like a pink shirt in one of them or something, but oh yeah. 
I know. Well, it's it's funny. I was thinking about that. Um, not funny, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I was thinking about how like certain images of victims become kind of immortalized with stories. And that is the go-to image that I think most people think of when they think of this case is yes. like her senior portrait. But every case has like that image, you know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. the Asia degree image, like that one with her, with um, the twists in her hair. And then she has like the beads. That is the go-to image. You can almost, if you're in the world of true crime, you can see that silhouette and you almost know the story already. Yeah. It's so familiar. Absolutely. So that's kind of what I thought of when I was thinking about Natalie's case and what it probably meant to people, how it's like stood the test of time. So we have this girl. She's on the pre-med track, full scholarship, really smart. Everything in her life was kind of shaping up for the next chapter of college when, you know, she was really going to pursue her dreams until it all went wrong. So this is when we get into the trip. Now, Many schools and outside parties organize trips for their graduating classes. My school did this. I don't know if yours did as well. Well, you guys were doing Outward Bound. Mm-hmm. You guys were out in the woods. <laughs> we were getting tortured. Yeah, yeah, I was like, some kids go to Aruba. <laughs> some kids go to the woods. <laughs> to the mountainous woods of North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the hills have eyes. That's too much. Something, something's mm-hmm. out there. <laughs> Something was out there. It was frostbite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so they're organizing this trip, right? I mean, Natalie had worked really hard. You know, she is there a fighter jet going on to the what's happening Literally. in the background? Like Joe Biden is about to <laughs> land on top of my apartment. Stop. We have T minus five minutes before the ice cream truck is gonna come blaring through. So I gotta make sure I get I get through the exposition before we get our, our alarm. <laughs> but yeah, so they she had worked really hard. She really wanted to do the class trip with, you know, go to Aruba. Um, celebrate everything she had accomplished just before she was really going to buckle down and go on the pre-med track. So I think her stepfather was like, you earned it. You worked really hard. He helped pay for the trip. He gave her money for the trip. Now, this trip was going to be big. It was technically organized outside of the school, but it was really like through parents and like chaperones. Like It it was a school trip. There's 124 students who were going. It's a five-day vacation. And only seven chaperones would be accompanying them because at this point most of these kids were like 18 like they could have done the trip solo if they wanted to so what's our timeline here they arrive on may 26 2005 along with the the seven chaperones that are going to keep watch on them um but like i said because most of them are 18 they're going to have basically free reign it's like full freedom they just have to do check-ins in-person check-ins because nobody has a cell phone so I think every day, at a certain point in the day, everybody has to be seen and accounted for in person. And in a quote from Jody Bierman, she helped organize the trip. The chaperones were not supposed to keep up with their every move. It was more like the check-in schedule, and they're just there if you need an adult resource or you have a question. Um, so from what police would eventually piece together, this trip, and this was probably you know talked about in the news as well at the time, the trip was wild, like nonstop partying for everyone. And they were all staying in the Holiday Inn, uh, a lot nicer than the hotels we stayed in. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was, but I mean, from everything that I, I read about, it was like, wake up, pound two cocktails, start the entire day, just back to back drinking all through the night. And there's lots of partying. They're switching rooms. 
they're out gambling, coming back late. And I guess it was like so rowdy that the Holiday Inn actually, before they left, issued a statement to them or like a a notice where they were like, you are not welcome back the following year. So they were Mm. were going hard. Um, But it's a graduation trip. Like people, they're having fun and they're partying. You know, it's, they're finally letting loose. Can I clarify? Is the drinking age in Aruba 18? It is. Yeah. Which is how most of them were able to like have complete fun. It's kind of like, I mean, I took a a London trip when I was in college and like drinking, we weren't even 21 and we could drink. Right. So yeah, people drinking age and gambling age, I think are both 18 in Aruba. So Natalie is letting loose. She's having the time of her life. She's keeping up with everybody. She's checking in with her chaperones. Everything is fine. And the system that was in place for the check-ins, like I said, periodically, it's about 15 students. They're assigned to one chaperone. They go for their physical check-in, and then they're fine for the rest of the day. Natalie had reported to every single one. She was not causing trouble. She was being responsible through all of it, even though it was a chaotic and like fun time. So... Then there's a night where everything goes off course. So they're out drinking and they're gambling. I think they're playing poker, actually. Natalie is at a poker table. She's with a few of her friends. And this is where we get an introduction that's pretty significant to the case. There is a young man with two other men who approaches her at that table. And he's very imposing. He's a very tall, well over like, I think he's close to 6'5". He comes to the table, starts up a conversation, and he says his name is Joran Vandersloot. He has a Dutch accent, and he claims that he's a 19-year-old college student from the Netherlands, and that he's just there on vacation with his family, and that he too is coincidentally staying in the Holiday Inn. How convenient. So they kind of get to like know him, like her friends, and like him and his friends are like chatting a little bit, and they're on vacation. And basically, it sounds like he invites, or she invites them out. I think it's the girls and Natalie. They invite Yoran and his friends out. And he kind of plays it cool. He's like, yeah, club scenes are kind of like not great on a, a Sunday night. It was a Sunday. He's But he's kind of playing coy. He does eventually show. So to clarify, this is the evening of the fourth night. It's technically so late into the night that it becomes the following day, May 30th, because all of this kind of goes down around like 1, 1.30 in the morning when they end up going to a nightclub and bar called Carlos and Charlie's. So she's at this bar. Joran and his friends come. Classmates are there. Everybody's partying. They're having fun. And she's drinking pretty mildly. From all the witnesses who saw her, her friends, they said she only had about two cocktails. Nothing excessive, which would later be countered by Joran's story, saying that she was like binge drinking. And the reason I think she was kind of pacing herself actually was because, one, you know, she's around new people like that she doesn't know. You probably don't want to get blackout. But also they're flying home the next morning. They're going to go back to the States. Mm -hmm. So it's her last night. So they saw her being social witnesses. You know, it looked pretty fine. Maybe like a little bit of flirting, some dancing. And then sometime around 1 a.m. is where things go wrong. So the club closes at one, they hit the lights, and then it's like a stampede. Everybody is like pushing to get out of the club. She gets separated from her friends and everybody kind of loses everybody until they get outside because everyone wants to get the cabs before they're all going to be gone so they can get back to their hotels. So there's only one witness who really saw her at the street level, but this is really important. They saw her struggling to walk like really, 
really bad from a distance. This is one of her either friends or acquaintances, one of her classmates, and she was walking or being walked in the opposite direction away from the club, away from her friends with Yoran and his two friends. That's really important because this would be the last time that really anyone sees Natalie Holloway. So the other two friends, just to give them names, there's 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo and there's 18-year-old Satish Kalpo brothers. That's a scary sight. We should maybe pause there because if you're seeing a girl struggling to walk and head in the opposite direction with three random men, this is why these conversations have to happen. And stories like this have to be talked about because that's your cue to go in and literally hook her arm and go in the opposite direction with her. Thank God you paused because I was envisioning it and I was starting to like go down like a vision rabbit hole of just like watching her almost like fade away from me. Like I literally am like picturing it in my head. Just And so was the witness a classmate or was it just a random person? It's a classmate, I believe. It might have even been like a friend of hers, but it was, I mean, I think the excuse was that they were saying, you know, we were young. We weren't sure like how intoxicated she was because to their knowledge, they'd only seen her drink two drinks. So they were like, there's no way she could have been that drunk, which is why I think that she was probably drugged. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think she could have been that drunk off a couple of drinks. And her parents, her mother specifically, was like, Natalie would not, I mean, she would be partying, she's having fun, but she wouldn't drink to the point where she's she can't walk and she's falling on the street. But again, three rant strangers in Aruba, you know? That's, I did not remember that that was kind of like the last sight of her that's so scary i'm especially now with all the knowledge we have about trafficking and like what goes what Mm -hmm. goes down when people are on vacations i I think we're much more we're a lot savvier now people are generally but yeah 2005 everybody's 18 i guess no one knew what was really going on but they just watched her walk away this one person almost nobody else saw her everybody else was like preoccupied trying to like get their wits about them. Like, how do we get a cab? Do you have money? Like kind of thing. Yeah. And that's such an interesting point because if this was like premeditated, which, and nefarious, like they knew that, that it was probably like the floodgates are going to open when that bar closes at one. And like, they could probably get her. Like that's their time to lose everybody. In the chaos. Yeah. Like a friend wouldn't like grab her arm and be like, no, she's going to stay with us. Like have a nice night guys. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, that's so devious and like horrible. But yeah, probably, I mean, I can assume probably like what they were thinking. And it almost seemed like the two other men, I couldn't think of them in the story as anything other than like henchmen, you know, like kind of acting yes. as like they're part of this grand scheme for Yoran, who's like the ringleader. When you said Yoran's name the first time, it, I had forgotten it mm-hmm. and it immediately sent like chills down my spine. He's. I mean, I I don't want to give away too much just yet, but he's diabolical, an evil human being. But I should should keep going. I should keep pressing on because there's a lot to get through with him. So, but that is, that's it. That's all we have. That's the last image is Natalie walking away. And it would prove to be like this image doesn't just look sinister. It is ultimately fatal. So by the following morning, Natalie is nowhere to be found. She never came back to the hotel that night. And again, everybody's going to fly back to the States that day. So the chaperones and the suite mates, they start panicking. Like it's really starting to set in. Like she never came home last night. Okay. Maybe she stayed out with this guy. Maybe she like, you know, stayed over at his place. That's 
fine, but we have no way to contact her. And all of her luggage, her cell phone, <laughs> and her passport are all in the hotel. Like, she pre-packed it. Like, she was clearly indicating and, like, ready to leave the next day. There was no nothing to say, like, she's going to hang back in Aruba. But again, nobody can find her anywhere. So eventually that day, it just comes to be that, you know, 124 kids, they have to fly back at a certain time. So they do. There is one chaperone who stays behind because they still don't have eyes on her. And he's like, I'm going to stay because at this point, he has to communicate to not only the police, but the parents that Natalie Holloway is missing. That's got to be, I mean, I'm not to diminish like what the parents probably experienced when they got that phone call, but the pit in your stomach having to make a phone call like that to say that you've lost somebody's child. Oh my God. I I can't even imagine that. And being in a foreign country where you're just like, okay, we're going to have to start trying to find her now and communicate with foreign, you know, police and try to find her. And like, it just, I mean, it's like the clock starts and that's so just so gives me chills. And it's, I mean, it it would prove to be challenging too, because of that reason. I mean, it, we get into a bit of like conspiracy, believe it or not, County is going to play a role in this as well. Um, But that has more to do with who Euron is that we would come to learn. But it's also, they have a waiting period as well, just like the U.S., which actually Mm. I heard countered recently. Somebody said, no, that's actually a myth. The United States doesn't have a waiting period where you have to wait 24 hours. That's something police tell you. But legally, they don't have to, they don't have to do that. Like, it's just something they do to deflect. In Aruba, they do have a policy where you have to wait 24 hours and she's 18, so they have to wait it. Oh my gosh. I, I bet I, I actually I'm sure you'll get into it. I don't did her parents fly down there? The same like the same day. Yeah. They actually yeah, I'll yeah, get into yeah. it in a bit, but That's like the second they got the call, because I think her stepfather is pretty either pretty well off or pretty well connected because they had a friend who actually had a private plane who was able to get them there mm. like by that night. I think they landed by 10 p.m. or something. So I should keep pressing. Let's see. Let's talk through the investigation. Maybe that's a good place to start because it really does start yeah. immediately, even though the police search doesn't start immediately. The second the parents get the call, it's it's on. Like, they're there. So what do we have? Let's go back to the last time she was seen. We have the final friend and witness who saw her going in the direction with the three men um, who claimed to see her. get. They said they saw her get all the way to one of their cars, and she was pushed inside of the car and then the car drove off. So naturally, we've got all eyes on those three boys. It's obvious. We want to know what they know. So, like I said, the very second Natalie's mother and stepfather get the call, they get the private plane with their friend. They go straight down to Aruba, and they meet the chaperone and hotel security right in the lobby of the Holiday Inn. And the chaperone is just a mess, like in shambles over like this horrible feeling that not only is she missing, but you would have thought like after like hour five, six, seven, she would have tried to contact maybe the hotel or somebody, you know, she knows she's supposed to be right. leaving. So something is really, really wrong. So they first check in with the hotel security to say like, have you seen her? Is it possible? Like anybody saw her? Are there any witnesses in the hotel? And they're like, no, nobody has seen her. But at this point, by the time the parents arrive, they have two more hours before it's officially going to hit the 24-hour mark, and they can properly file 
a report. Um, but the mother doesn't waste any time. She doesn't care. So she just starts questioning everybody that she can. And the first detail that she's fed was about the last sighting of Natalie. She knows that friend saw her walk off with the three men. And someone knows the name, Joran Vandersloot. So she asks the hotel management if they recognize that name. And to her shock, they do. And he's not who Natalie thought she he was. Now, if you remember, like he told Natalie that he was a Dutch student who was visiting and that he was a 19-year-old. According to the hotel staff, he's a local 17-year-old high schooler, and he is the son of Paul Vandersloot, who is a high-profile attorney for the Aruban government. So the corruption's already setting in from the get-go, like that mm-hmm. this kid is nefarious, but he's a powerful, powerful kid from a well-off family on this island. So just to tee it up, like kind of the unspoken power of this kid I was reading about, allegedly there is an understanding on the island that although he's underage, 17, he is allowed into clubs, he's allowed to drink, he's allowed to gamble. Like people know this kid. He has a reputation. So you're already kind of getting the sense that like he kind of operates and that he's above the law and he can get away with a lot, which is spelling a lot of trouble for a girl that is now missing who was last seen with him and his two friends. So I didn't want to jump to any conclusions, but I had my suspicions right out the gate that he's bad, bad seed, not a good character. Yeah. And I always say like when they're that young and they are trying to do like sinister things, it's just like just the, the gall. Like I know you and I at 17 (laughs) <laughs> we would have been freaking out to do like anything that was not I, I, I pretty much honest. Like yeah. even if we did it, even if we snuck out, we were like freaking out the whole time. Like, I think it's just absolutely insane to me to think about a 17 year old. And I guess given his like entitled status, but totally to pretend to be somebody you're not and take off with a girl. Like, and have from, friends like clearly there horrible friends that are going to go along with this, like yeah. perpetuate the deception. It's weird. It's weird. It's so strange. Yeah, it's well, I mean, once the 24 hours are up because she gets that name of like the Vandersloots and the mother is going wild. She wants to go and like confront the family because she's able to get the address from a local. I think she pays a local to get the address. But at this point, the 24 hour period is actually up. So. Believe it or not, police actually step up to the plate and they go directly to the Vandersloot's home and they take the Holloways with them and they knock on that door at like 2 a.m. So when they, the I think the father Paul opens the door, he greets them. Yoron's actually not there. He's allegedly out gambling with the two friends. So he gets called back to the home and he's there by 3 a.m. And then he gets confronted right then and there by Natalie's parents and they like hold up a picture and they're like, where is she? kind of thing like they've already got their suspicions on him so this is their story because the three all three of them are there the two friends come as well so they admit that last night they were with natalie and they were in deepak's car yoran and natalie were in the back seat and they described that she was like blacking out like falling asleep beyond drunk which again is kind of fishy for the two cocktails that people saw her drink you know why is she mm-hmm. blackout so they claim they got to the holiday inn to drop her off, she got out of the car, fell, hit her head on the ground, and then they said two security guards at the hotel 
helped her inside, and that was the last they'd ever seen of her that night. They didn't see her after this. Now, Natalie's parents don't buy this straight straight away because the mother, one, like I said, knows her daughter, and she's like, she was there to have a good time, but she would not have been irresponsible and gotten black. She wouldn't be blacked out, you know? But it's possible, you know? She just thinks something is a little strange, and she immediately is already starting to suspect her daughter was drugged. But the most important Mm. piece of the story is the hotel drop-off and the two security guards. What do they know? Because apparently they were the last ones to see her and help her inside. So at this point, the press has already kind of like leached onto the story. Like the world is like heating up around this case and it becomes a manhunt in Aruba to find this girl. Everybody is like pitching in their efforts and all eyes go to the security guards because that's the most current story that the three boys dropped her off at the hotel. She fell, hit her head and was knocked out and two security guards lifted her up. So we get five days into the investigation um, and the security guards had been apprehended, but then it all falls through. So the security footage from outside the hotel is eventually obtained. Never once shows the boys getting to the hotel. Natalie was never seen. They never arrived in a car. She never fell out and hit her head in front of the Holiday Inn. Complete lie. Boldface lie. So this is probably, I, I would say, the first public instance where we start to realize, okay, the details are corrupt. There's something that this three knows that's not quite right. But what's odd about that is like, once the security guards are cleared, this is when we get a tell into some of the public like police corruption because they're still kept in custody. Why? Everybody knows there's no footage of them doing like what these three boys said they did. But for some reason, police are still like instructed to keep their focus on the security guards, which seems like a deflection. I don't know. How do you feel about that? And at this point, none of the boys have been arrested, right? Not yet. No. (laughs) Yeah. it's Why were the security guards? You're saying they weren't arrested. They were just being held. I mean, they were essentially arrested because they were detained and they were, yeah, they were like held in like a jail for like days if not a week but they had already been cleared the boys aren't is it because they're minors i I don't the thing is well it's murky because we're not sure if this is like shoddy police work from aruban county or Mm -hmm. if this is some corruption like a lot of people are suspecting because don't forget that father is a high profile well-connected attorney who has every reason to like keep those boys free and available to like coach them for as many days as he can, because eventually it's going to come back to them and they're going to get detained and they're going to get questioned. I think in total, they would end up having 10 days where all boys were roaming free 10 days of preparation before police turned their focus back to them. I think that's, what's killing me right now is that like the chasing down the security guard story just gives them so much time to craft whatever it is that they're going to say. Anything could have happened. Yeah, corroborate your story. Like, you can hide evidence. Like, you can delete. There's so many things that could, especially when you have the guidance of, like, one of the top attorneys in the the whole, like, country, like, there by your side. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. So, eventually, that does fall through, though, because suspicion will turn back onto the boys. And because at this point, there is so much, like, international outcry, it's really swift. 
and all of the boys, it, it pivots back to them. They get brought into custody and then their homes are searched as well as the vehicle that Natalie was last seen in. Now, like I said, the problem is that 10 days have since passed since her disappearance. So the family has argued that so much has passed, so much time has passed that a lot of evidence was probably destroyed and they've like missed out on a really vital window when they probably could have found her. So this is really the first time though that we're going to get all three of these boys separated because the first time they were questioned by police, they all kind of had the same story. But now that we've got them in different rooms, this is where we start to poke some holes into where the truth is and where the lies are. So at first, they all kind of admit, they're like, we lied about the security guards, you know, and none of that happened on that night. Now, this is where it deviates. Deepak and Satish, their stories line up, the brothers. They claimed that Yoran asked Deepak if he could drop them off once they got back in the car at the beach near the Marriott that night. This is like a mile away from the Holiday Inn. So according to the story of the brother, they dropped them off, assumed that Yoran would like, you know, make sure she got home safe and everything. And that was the last time the two brothers saw her. They do not know what happened to her or what happened between her and Yoran afterwards. Now, Yoran's story is different. He claims that it's true. He asked them to like drop them off at the beach. But while walking near the shore, he said that she fell asleep And then he left her on the beach and called Deepak back to come pick him up at around 3 a.m. So let's pause there because what in God's name left her on the beach sleeping? That's horrible. (laughs) That's wretched. Honestly, if that's the best story he could come up with in 10 days, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I am shocked because that like to me that immediately signifies you are irresponsible (laughs) you don't care about people like you are unempathetic like (laughs) that's a terrible narrative to craft for yourself and also he doesn't even have the excuse to be like i was just wasted too and so i wandered off and i lost her it was dark like he clearly was with it enough to be like escorting her like he's trying to play hero and like escorting her out and like she was she was blacked out and we were taking care of her and then all of a sudden you're gonna switch it up and say that you just left her on the beach left her on the beach sleeping and got yourself picked up couldn't even like ask your friend to like take her yeah and the reason the thing is is like it's a it makes him look terrible and i'm like if that's your like faux story to like make you look innocent that's awful because what really did happen was something much darker i'm sure Exactly. But it turns out that, like, there's actually, once we get into some of the other witnesses, and there are witnesses who were, like, near the beach around that time, there's no evidence they even ever went to the beach, which is even stranger. So we've got that story. He's like, yeah, he's like, I I left her on the beach. I got picked up at 3 a.m. So we pause there. And then I'm like, damn, that's horrific if that were true. But it does not align with the story coming from Deepak and his brother, Satish. Both brothers denied ever returning to the beach to pick him up that night. So during the search of Deepak's home, they looked through his computer and it showed timestamped messages that were sent from him at around 3 a.m. from that residence. So that makes the whole story kind of fall through with Yoran, where he never called the brothers, they find out, and that was just all bull. So the brothers come forward, they publicly apologize for lying to police in the beginning, and they said they did so because they were protecting Yoran and were scared. 
which I I think could make sense, especially if this is a kid who's coming from a family that could potentially cover up a murder. That's kind of like someone holding a gun to your head and you're probably going to lie for them. Absolutely. And I'm sure, I don't know if we'll get into it, but the brothers, their backstory, if they're like hanging out with uh, Yoron because he's kind of rich and privileged Mm -hmm. and whatever, and they're just kind of Tweedledee and Tweedledum, like just going along with whatever. Uh, eventually when it gets this serious, they're brothers, they're going to protect each other. And they're going to say like, we don't screw you, dude. Like we're, we're going to do our own thing. I I do remember now that you're recounting this, I'm remembering that kind of happening, the, the break. Yeah. Well, a lot of people are divided on the brothers as sort of characters in this story, because it becomes the question. I'm pretty firm that I, you know, although I believe they did the right thing by being as honest as they could, it's like a little too late, you know? I mean, oh God, yeah. They they should not be like held without fault, is kind of my point. You know, they were just as much Absolutely. an accomplice to this story in a strange way. Um, even if they weren't the ones who did something horrible to Natalie, like I believe Euron probably did. Absolutely. They were enablers, enablers of the whole situation. Yeah, they were henchmen, literally. The muscle of the yeah. of the plan. Now Back to what what's going on with Yoron. So we've got all these lies like on the table and he's like spinning up even more because once he realizes that he was kind of caught red handed a couple of times, he's just like lying to send people on a wild goose chase. Like, like police at this point don't even know what's real. They don't know if he's telling the truth, if it's like a lead they should follow. And investigators do not believe he was ever on the beach because there were fishermen that they talked to who were there early that morning on a dock by the Marriott, and they said, we never saw any guy and girl near the shore. So the question is, what happened after, if Deepak and Satish, if their story is true, that like they said to get dropped off at the beach, they get out of the car, what happens next? Natalie is probably completely unconscious at this point. But this is, I think this is around the time where the case took a turn in the US media because there's a frenzy over this, because that spells guilty. And mm-hmm. One commonality, I would say, between when it comes to all high-profile cases that get, like, out of control in the media, there's something that people really love to fixate on. There is a clear victim, and there is a clear villain. It's the same thing as Casey Anthony to Kaylee Anthony to OJ to Nicole. There is a clear image of our victim and villain. You have to have a monster in this story. That's how I think it, it pulled so much traction in the U.S., mm-hmm. really. But at this point, it's completely out of control because there's so much U.S. pressure coming, you know, from the States to Aruba to solve this, find this girl and arrest this kid. He is detained at this point, but like try him. And the parents are kind of left helpless because, you know, if something was covered up and if, you know, this kid's father is in the pockets of law enforcement, the only thing they can do is like extend the media coverage on this even more. Her mother's doing 12 interviews a day for her daughter, just like building up more and more media hype around like find Natalie Holloway. And at this point, we think police have lied, possibly. There's major conflict here between law enforcement, the investigation, people from the the states who are coming to investigate and Yoron's family. And then eventually we've got television personalities in the U.S. who are saying like boycott Aruba, boycott Aruba, like tourism, it's not safe or until Natalie is found, which does happen. In 2005, there was a 7% immediate dip following the story. 
in Aruban tourism, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for an economy that runs entirely on tourism, mm-hmm. it's devastating. It's like the weight of this case was crashing down on everyone. So I would say this is the turning point where Natalie became kind of a symbol. The image of Natalie became a symbol to this story where the story was, it was bigger than her in an odd way to people where they really wanted to see justice served for her against Yoran. And let's see, I think some of the bad press here was inadvertently hurting people who I think had nothing to do with this story, of course, because obviously if the economy is tanking and it's you're dependent on tourism as someone who works and lives in Aruba, it can really disenfranchise you for something that really has nothing to do with you. And this kind of created a wedge between the people of Aruba, Americans, and people started to like take your on side in Aruba, which is shocking because he's so guilty. But it became kind of like tribalism in a weird way. Like people were, mm. you know, they were upset because their businesses were faltering because of the lack of tourism. But rather than get mad at the culprit, they were mad at the U.S. for perpetuating the story because they're like, there's really no evidence to say that he did anything. We don't have a body kind of thing. And like the two other boys, like Deepak and Satish, like they've already been cleared. So stop pushing this story and telling people it's unsafe. Like it really created tension between the two places and people. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a really touchy subject here, but I think had she gone missing in a place like, you know, Milan or London or something where there, it was definitely an element. Cause I remember that very specifically, like the whole Aruba element of it. Mm-hmm. I even remember, you know, saying to people years later that I was going to maybe go to Aruba on vacation. And this was probably 10 years later. And it was like, oh, be careful. Remember the Natalie Holloway story? And I was like, it's like yeah. Oh, my God. lasting People effects. really still do have a black mark sort of on it because of this case. And um, yeah, I mean, it is it is a shame to think about that. There were probably people that really suffered from it. Their businesses suffered from so it many people. because of this one kind of siloed incident. Yeah, and just one powerful kid, really, who is responsible for all of this, and nobody could really hold his feet to the fire for whatever reason. But we do end up getting a twist in the case, which kind of drives us a bit further. So around the time that there's still, like, no evidence against Duran, outside of the fact that he's a pathological liar and everybody knows that, and all fingers are pointing to him, there is a young woman who comes forward. And she was really brave to do so at the time, especially considering how powerful, you know, and prestigious the family was. She claims that she was sexually assaulted by Yoran while drunk, and she believes that she was drugged and date raped. And then suddenly she opens up the floodgates because a horde of women, really young women, come forward and say the same thing. One as young as 12 years old. He is a evil, evil character in this story. And... I mean, this also really doesn't help, like, the public opinion against Satish and Deepak as well, because, you know, although they're cleared, like I said, they're his friends. You know, they helped enable this scheme. And possibly they were even the people who helped drug her that night, if that's really what happened. Now, there there are many investigators who have, like, reviewed some of the final witness statements about Natalie and, like, what she was acting like. 
The conclusion that most of them have come to is that they think she probably was drugged with GHB while she was drinking, which is a heavy depressant. And if too much of it is consumed, people can pass out or slip into comas or it's fatal. Which I'm going to say that's probably what happened. That's that's what I'm thinking. I think there was a point where she went beyond the point of being drugged, like maybe Yoran had anticipated, and she slipped into a coma where she had just completely mm-hmm. overdosed and died. And then it became a question of how do I clean up the mess? How do I call dad and clean up the mess? You know, it makes sense to purely from the idea also that she was probably exhausted at that point. She's been going out for four days straight. Like her body was probably in shutdown mode already. And to push it into overdrive with a drug like that. I mean, I'm sure that her body was like already kind of running on fumes. Yeah. Um, Do you think that you ever made it to the beach? I can see a scenario where like. He tried to get her to the beach for whatever twisted and horrible thing he was going to do. And then in the midst of that, she could she might have slipped into a coma or he could tell that she was dead. Potentially. But you know what I think is that if this isn't his first time doing this. Mm-hmm. I have maybe sort of a it's unfounded, but a hunch that if those are his henchmen, the brothers, and they've helped him do something like this before. Mm-hmm. They probably know exactly where they went to hang out. Do you think they might know where the body could be? Like, do you think they're still I protecting don't know if they him? Know I I don't know if they still are protecting him with the body, but I, I I sort of have a feeling that if they had seen him do this before with other girls, there's probably a spot that he goes to or multiple that he has frequented, and they probably know where he was headed. Yeah. Probably someplace secluded, like under the dock or something. Like, yeah, yeah. something dark and like, oh, it's horrible to think about. But they might not have ever revealed that because they were just like, we don't want to get any more entangled in the web than we already are. Yeah, I could never tell if they had like reached an impasse where they were like, okay, it's time to come clean about every single thing we know. Or if they're like, mm-hmm. okay, we have to come clean enough to clear our names, but we can still, right. because we can't ignore that they had 10 days. This, For all we know, this could have been orchestrated. That they had, like, planned to, like, okay, we'll come clean up to a point that absolves us of, like, any involvement. But we'll still protect, like, where he probably took her. If they went back to, like, a house or something. Like, something went down. Mm -hmm. Because, again, like I said, there really is no evidence they ever made it to that beach. So whether or not Deepak actually dropped them off at the beach or it was someplace else, we don't know for sure. But what's crazy, and this will make you sick, because there is no concrete evidence against Joran after three months of this investigation of him being imprisoned he's released completely released and you know what's actually even crazier about that during the investigation when they were like previously interviewing Deepak and Satish they had mentioned that Joran's father the attorney told them and this is why I kind of think they were like in the mode of like let's just lay everything on the table that we know they revealed that he approached them in like the beginning of the investigation, the first few days after that like knock at the door, and he said, if there's no body, there's no case. Mm. So eventually one- That's right. Yeah. That, that's the truth. When With a murder trial, yeah. if there's no body, it's very hard to make a case out of it. So 
I think, well, once that got revealed, actually, this is like a strange, like, there must be like weird animosity, internal animosity between like law enforcement. Like clearly there's a sector that like wants to do their job or wants to appear they're doing their job and due diligence. But then there seems like there's another sector that's protecting this family and this attorney because once that got revealed, they actually arrested the father on suspicion of hiding evidence. Um, But again, nothing is ever found. And he's a high profile attorney who probably knows his way out of an interrogation so with that, Joran and his father, they were both suspected to have disposed of the body, but they're both set free. And later that year, Joran, 2005, he would end up leaving Aruba and he goes to college in the, Nether- the Netherlands as planned, as if nothing ever happened. That's infuriating. Come on. It, it's, I was just thinking that it, I think why it was so, so infuriating at the time was that they were both similar ages and like two people about to start their lives and she got the end of the stick. Yeah. One, o- one hour and 52 seconds. Good. <laughs> Warranted, honestly. Yeah. And like he got he got to start his life it's, and it was so unfair. blatantly obvious that something had gone down and that was so sinister. And I think it's also one thing when young women are taken or they're drugged or they're assaulted and it's by somebody in the community that's older and it's like maybe they had a criminal history there was a past there but we look at them and go like this is going to sound weird but like you're older and jaded and like that's part of your kind of part of your profile Mm -hmm. so like it's of course awful but like expected i think what made this so horrific was that he was I guess sort of shady and like had done this with other girls. So, but I don't think people really knew about that yet. And he had this like total facade of being this like entitled rich kid, basically. Yeah, he's and somebody you want to see go him- down. You want to see this yes, person like yeah. eat, eat it, you know, but he, yes. Yeah. And he got out. Yeah. Completely got away. With- well, it does get a lot darker. The aftermath of the story gets even darker if you can believe it, because He's free. He goes to college in the the Netherlands. And then three years would pass of Natalie's family just living with this horrible assumption back in the U.S. Because I think after five weeks of, like, the investigation and looking for her in Aruba, they eventually went back to the United States because they were just told at this point it's not believed that she's – we do not believe she's alive. We just don't know where she is or where she would be. But – Three years pass. They live with the assumption that their daughter is gone forever. They'll never see a body. And then Joran over in the Netherlands is running his mouth. He's talking a lot. Apparently, he's just very loose with information because he's like a cocky college kid who effectively got away with murder. So he flaunts it as a flex to everybody. Like, he can't be touched. And his dad got, you know, got him out of like a murder jam. And this spreads. And eventually, I mean, it gets to the point where there are Dutch journalists who like secretly record him admitting saying that he knows where the body is and then what he but it's like insane because like he gets questioned on this like police come to him and they're like you admitted to knowing where a body is and he goes it was just a lie i was just like kidding like every murderer could get out of it like if they just said uh that was a lie (laughs) like that was alleged like what are we doing well, that's what I'm saying. It's it's like the arrogance and the <laughs> clearly something's mentally wrong with this kid. Like he's 
living in his own reality. That it's what was it's, created for him. I mean, that was his reality. Yeah, he was exactly. untouchable. It's horrible. Yeah. It's going to get a lot worse. Should I tell you this? <laughs> I love how you're looking at me and you're like, baby, don't blow a gasket. Because <laughs> you know I am. It's, My like maternal instinct right now is like, I won't mess that boy up. I'm, like I literally. I see him pie. <laughs> I get so amped about this case too because maybe if memory serves me correctly, when you just mentioned the mom, mm-hmm. like them being asked to leave, I feel like I remember a really intense interview, like their final kind of press conference before they left Aruba and like they are sobbing and it's just like, oh, like, yeah, that is so, I can't even put myself mentally there. Well, I think it's interesting because I think that was at the turning point where it it became the tribalism because the two boys that were cleared they were no longer considered to be like, um, how do we just go? They weren't, I mean, they weren't perpetrators in this case, but they had been vilified so hard in the U.S. that a lot of people in Aruba felt a sense of protection over like, you know, some of their own. And, you know, you've hurt, also hurt the economy here. So they just like misappropriated blame. And rather than put it on the Vandersloot family, they put it on the Holloway's. And they had like verbalized this. Many people in the streets would be like, you overstayed your welcome. Like get out of Aruba Mm -hmm. to the family. So tensions were already running high at the time that they were told to leave Aruba. But as if the family had not been through enough, this gets a lot worse by 2010. So five years forward, Yoran sends an email to Natalie's mother and I think her attorney. And he says, I know where the body is and I'm willing to tell you. (gasps) If you pay me $250,000. So absurd. It's actually absurd. So the lawyer has this. And the lawyer is like, we're going to forward this to the FBI, <laughs> to our contacts who worked on this case. Now, this portion of the story gets kind of murky for me because I, I think what secretly happens, it must have been out of like, their judgment was clouded or like they were just so desperate from grief that her parents... They they do wire him money. They send him $10,000 at first to get, like, just a tidbit of information. And he says that the body is buried in the foundation of his family home in Aruba. They wire him another 15000 And then he follows up and he says, I made it all up and ghosts them. Just a despicable, evil person. And there's no consequence, as it seems, because he extorted this money from them. But the law gets murky as to who can actually prosecute it because he's in the Netherlands when he's doing this and it happens in the U.S. It's a whole thing. How, how can you raise a child like that is what I'm sitting here thinking. I'm assuming he, <laughs> you don't. I'm assu- like yeah, that. I'm assuming like he just like grew up doing whatever he wanted on the island and had no consequence. I don't think he was raised. I think that's how you create a monster like this. Having a terrible yeah. family, terrible father, possibly a father who like, yeah, helps you cover up a murder. <laughs> Probably helped yeah. you bury a body. So there's no consequence for that. And according to the story that I pieced together, Yoren actually used the money that he extorted from this poor girl's family to gamble in a poker tournament in Peru. This is when it gets crazy. At this poker tournament, he meets a 21-year-old woman who is also playing in the tournament, and she wins some money. Yoran invites her back to his room to celebrate, murders the girl, steals all of her winnings, and flees to Chile. He's a psychopath. 
He is a psychopathic killer. Now, I did not remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, haven't heard that one in any of like the snippets of the story because most of it focuses on Natalie's case. But right. to me, that is, well, this is like the time where he is going to pay because he flees to Chile. He stole all of her winnings just thinking he could like blend into hiding. They do catch him. He's apprehended and they charge him. He pleads guilty. You want to know what his defense is for this murder? Hmm. He, his lawyer puts forward that he murdered because he had been psychologically damaged and tormented by the Natalie Holloway suspicion that the media was so harsh on him that it drove him to insanity to kill. You can't make this up. Like, it's absurd. Because that's what most people do mm. when they're wrongly accused. They go and do the damn thing that they've been wrongly accused of. Oops. I don't think so. Yeah, this whole, like, <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy thing of, like, you made the media made him a killer. Just get out of my face. Like, yeah. so eventually he is sentenced to 28 years in prison. So he is going to be released, I think, in our lifetime for sure. Um, and he will stand trial in the then once he is released, he's going to stand trial in the US for extorting the money from the Holloways. So that's the plan after the 28 years. If he gets out on good behavior early, they're going to send him to the US and then he'll be tried there and probably resentenced. Now, we're just left with the question. After all of this, what did happen to Natalie? Of course, at this point, it is assumed that she's dead. Um, most likely that she was killed and then hidden at the hands of the Vandersloots. And you would think that if this kid is locked up and he really has nothing to lose at this point, the one thing he could do, the one sliver of redemption here would be to confess and just explain what he knows because he definitely knows where her body is even if it's just saying you know we we dropped her in the ocean somewhere just tell the family and give them their closure he never does that he still to this day keeps up the torment against the family that i know something that you don't kind of thing and by 2012 her family closes the chapter on their grief and they have her legally pronounced dead and the life that they had envisioned for her of a young uh, aspiring doctor you know, with this full ride, it was just tragically cut short. And, you know, a lot of people want to see some more solve to the story. But until we have a body and until Doran or Paul come forward to say, we know something, this is where her case sits. Thoughts on that? That's everything I got. So... <laughs> Out of all of the, like, cases that we've done and we've been like, oh, I hope this one sees a solve, for some reason, for me, I, in my gut, like, want something. Like, I will send all of my energy. You hear this? Sorry. I was like, sorry, do you hear (laughs) the trash is, like, going wild outside? The trash guy just (laughs) I thought it was the ice cream man being, like, dum, 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 dum. Just crashes straight through my apartment. No, he, um. He's like, he's like, my music isn't working today. I need to just get your attention this way. (laughs) We have really low-hanging trees on this street. So when the trash, the trash um, truck comes, it, like, it, like, breaks a few branches. It just sounds like a very violent ordeal. When the trash man comes, he's gone now. Sorry, go on. Well, for a second, for a second, I was like, oh my God, Silas's roommate is being so loud. And I was like, wait, Silas doesn't have a roommate anymore. I don't have roommates. That's a ghost. There's a spirit. That's a spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 
that, you know what? That's okay because we needed. I needed a brain shift there. I know. I was about I to get real intense. We'll do a I debrief after intense, this. We'll but... we'll be able to like simmer down and calm down after this. But I know. Final thoughts on that? Yeah. But I do, I I do really want this case at some level to just for those parents to have any closure with this. Like that is the image I think of in my mind is the mom just sobbing at that in that press conference being like just and I know that she's also very active I think with like other disappearances now I think she like works for maybe like another disappearance like she helps like probably vigilante groups and stuff that's how a lot of families end up coping they end up you know doing advocacy work um don't quote me on that creepers but I want to say that's what she does but just like the the torture of this disgusting person being able to live their life holding on to that information. First of all, why do you want to hold on to that? Like you're that demonic. You want to hold that demon of that secret inside of you? Because he's a kid who has always gotten what he wants. And at this point, his feet have finally, he's finally been held to task and he's imprisoned. So I I could imagine in some strange, sick way, he's like, this is the one thing that he still gets to hold on to is like, taunting the family like you're never gonna know where your daughter is kind of thing because i know and i'm and i'll like take that secret to the grave kind of thing i'm surprised there isn't more of an investigation into the father paul because i think he's really I the know. brains behind this i I mean allegedly i can't say for sure but i i don't know i can't really imagine like what would have happened that night the one thing that keeps striking me about this and tell me if this is something you've thought about is the immense guilt that friend must have the last person, the only person who saw her walking away, <sighs> the last image of her. If like the, the scenarios they must have run through their head of like, if I had just walked over and been like, Natalie, are you good? Or like, if I had just like gone over and just grabbed her arm and said like, no, she's coming back to the hotel. We're leaving. Like, Oh, I just got chills. Yeah. But I mean, nobody should ever have a fear of like living with that guilt, which is why it's important to like speak up in those situations and mm-hmm. scenarios when you see something that looks shady going down because it's everywhere. It's all around you. Yeah. And I guess um, the other thing I was thinking, and it's not their fault, but just the idea that you're going to have that many kids on a trip drinking when they're not of like legal age normally, mm-hmm. like it's just, I mean, I know that people take those trips all the time, but I think there was a major shift after that. Like, I'm sure for parents and schools that it's like, okay, yeah. that is. <laughs> mm. Well, also just before the age of like iPhones too, like the smartphone, that also spelled yeah. like a recipe for disaster in this case because she went out without most of the kids because they didn't even have cell service there. They were like, why would we take our our like phones with us? They just left them in the hotel. Right. So, oh my God. Yeah. I forgot that you said that she pre-packed. It was already. Her luggage was packed. Her passport was in her hotel room with like her sweet mate. Her phone was there. Like she just left that club in the arms of this kid and just was never seen again. It's such a devastating story. But yeah, I can imagine. I can certainly imagine how this would have a grip on every parent in America who had like a high school age. Mm -hmm you know, st- student, especially kids who were like in college and maybe going to do their first like study abroad program. It's really, it's really nerve wracking and like hard to divorce the idea from your mind that something bad could happen. Something bad is out there. Absolutely. Honestly, I think that the Natalie Holloway case, 
I think as millennials, we got hit hard with anxiety producing things for our parents to have to worry about, mm-hmm. like the new technology wave, you know, something like 9-11 happened, Elizabeth Smart, Natalie Holloway. I think of these things and I'm kind of like, oh my God, like that's where so much of our anxiety comes from too. Like we really it's grew up in us. the yeah. era of like, it is changing, like the world is changing and you need to be ready for it kind of thing. I also, I think about that too sometimes and I've talked um, with Scott about that. Scott's been on the podcast before, but like I've I've talked about like how we were really trusted in like the guinea pig age of the true, true internet. The internet was around, but when I'm talking about like most homes had like a family computer with the internet and like the age of MySpace and social media, like we were really like children and they were like, go leave your digital footprint. Like we were, it was the wild west out there. We had nobody to guide us. And we're like, sure. It just like, wasn't fair. <laughs> like Scott and I recently um, went through our old, like, remember Yahoo Answers? Oh my God. They got rid of it. Yes, of course. And like ask Jeeves. Yeah, they, there was Yahoo Answers. And like, I was a pro. Like I would answer people's questions because I had all the knowledge at like 10. I was like, I know exactly what to tell you. <laughs> You're going through a divorce. Let me tell you a thing or two, honey. Like <laughs> I knew everything. <laughs> but I we got an email because Yahoo was like, hey, we're getting rid of Yahoo answers. So if you want to like save or screenshot any of your old answers, go take a look now. I hadn't thought about that in probably 15 years or so. Who knows? So Scott and I went back. The things we were asking strangers on the internet. Stop. Dark sodded, honey. Like so many coming of age questions. They're like, is this normal to do with a boy? Like so many things. <laughs> we shared them privately with each other and we were we like made a promise. We were like, we will never tell this to anyone but each other. The things that we asked oh, the world. My <laughs> the things I would do to read a whole book of your Yahoo answers. I also I couldn't spell for like <laughs> for anything. Like I was terrible at spelling. <laughs> It's like nine ten. We should not have been trusted at nine ten because there was no like parental control or anything. Like we could just do anything on the computer, and just delete the history. That's dark sided. <laughs> dark sided. Oh my god. But yeah, if that hasn't contributed to our anxiety, I don't know what will. I'm sure there's a lot more that can contribute. As- <laughs> but. <laughs> But gosh, I mean, yeah, I really do think of like this case as one of the like hallmark things of like when I was growing up, like, whoa, the world is actually scary. Yeah, it was also I mean, not that we were close in age to Natalie at the time she disappeared, but it was it's shocking to see a young person disappear in the news. Like, it's scary. Yeah, that that would make sense. It's like the first time you kind of realize like there's something bad things happen to people like me out there, you know, young people. and I also, yeah, I also think it's like from the female perspective too, yeah. that like as a young woman, like I guess I was only 12 at the time, but you see a girl that looks like Natalie that like you hear on the news, like sound bites of like, she was so beautiful. She was on her way. And like, as a girl, mm-hmm. you're sitting there like, like there are so many like sinister people out there, like that could do something like this to me or my friends. And, you know, it's. Mm-hmm. Oh God. It's a it's a classic trope and a really horrific story. I do hope one day, I mean, I really don't know how much more can come from 
an investigation at this point because it's so much time has passed. But I hope one day that family gets the kind of closure they're looking for, or they mm-hmm. just feel that Yoran has served, you know, justice has like truly been served to him. I don't know if that could ever, mm-hmm. it could ever equate to like having your daughter disappear forever. But that is her story. That is the, it technically is an unsolved disappearance. I told you we weren't going to have any theories on this. So this is going to like feel strange and like kind of infuriating, but I'm happy we covered this case. I'm happy I got to research it because I truly didn't know. I did not know how deep this ran and the impact this had in the true crime world. Yeah. I mean, and just like in news in general, like it was kind of like, I mean, it was one of the first cases that I feel like I remember like 24 Mm seven coverage on it. And now I feel like that's kind of a more classic thing, but like it was kind of the beginning of there's, you know, of course, true crime cases, but then there's the way they get covered in the press. And like, I remember that being, you know, our girl Nancy was all over this one. I remember. I was thinking, I thought about that while I was researching it. I was like, I guarantee you, Nancy did segments on this because it's right up her alley. She loves (laughs) Uh-huh. She well, that's the thing she latches onto. She latches onto stories that have a clear victim and a clear villain. Like mm-hmm. I think that's also why she was so big on um the Idaho murders as well. Which mm-hmm. I haven't seen a lot of people do many follow-ups on, but I know there there's still there are developments in that story in that case. But I would we should maybe we should do a refresher episode and see like the Idaho case, like where everything is at now. Yeah, isn't he on trial soon? I think so, but I just want to know. I need more of the story pieced together because at the time yeah. it like dropped off, there were still things I did not understand. And I, I keep seeing like headlines. I can't tell if they're deceptive or not. And it said like DoorDash had something to do with it. And I was like, DoorDash, maybe how he found out she lived there or that they lived there. Oh. And that something with like the roommate, it said like the roommate is the key to like what happened. Like lots of strange and like clickbaity headlines and i'm not sure what's true and what's not but we should we should do a second look oh i would love to do a second look at that case i was just thinking about that case recently actually i was thinking about when you and i were covering it talking about like how he had come into the apartment complex and then like as you and i were talking about it we like nothing had come out yet yeah we we didn't even have a name for the guy did we no yeah they did wow that's so eerie. That's so weird to think about. But that was a case that kind of captured something similar to this, I would say, in like the 24-hour mm-hmm. news coverage. Like News Nation. Definitely. They shut down all programming and did 100% coverage on the Idaho case. They had people on the ground every hour of the day in that town. What was the name of the town again? Oh, gosh. Um, it was near the college, right? Yes. It was right by the University of Idaho. But it was near... Moscow, Moscow, Idaho. Isn't like Moscow. Moscow. I was gonna yeah. say it's something like famous. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Stu, that is all I got for you. Thank you for joining me for a Friday episode. Thank you to the Creepers for listening to a Friday episode on the Natalie Holloway case. We're gonna be back next week with another. I don't know what we have on our list. What's on the docket? I, I know some that are on the docket. I, I, <laughs> but okay. I actually don't. Re- I don't remember what's after this one. I was gonna say. I was like, help me out because I don't. I think it's. I think it's sleepwalking homicide but i'd have to double check we'll see <laughs> and it could be subject to change wait are you is it night, night stalker no sleepwalking homicide no okay okay <laughs> that would be a great name for him 
contrary. Oh my god, I just did research on the Golden State Killer. He is called the original Night Stalker. <gasps> I didn't know that. Golden oh State Golden State Killer is a terrible. That's case. a huge one. Yeah. Oh. Oh God. God, that's horrible. <laughs> I hate it. So when did that take place again? Seventies, all the way through nineteen eighty six. He traveled all over yeah. California because at first he was. He wasn't killing people at first. He was known as like, oh, what was he doing? He was so he was vandalizing homes, like breaking in, tying people up, and he was like just scattering their clothes. Like he was like scattering women's panties. And then he moved to like the east area of San Francisco, I think. Or maybe it was San Diego. I can't remember. Um, and he was like breaking in and he was known as the East Area Rapist because he was breaking in to like couples' homes, tying them both up, and then he was raping but he would like put the husbands on their stomachs and like have them tied up and he would stack plates on their back and he said if the plates even like rattle you're both dead or i'm gonna cut your ear off (sighs) and he would do this for hours he did there were like 50 rapes in one area in like a two-year span like and he everybody knew when he broke in I, I promise I won't get into this whole case now, but like everybody knew it was him. <laughs> I was about to go in, but when he broke in, the way you could tell is you would wake up and he was straddling you over your bed, both the husband and wife, and he had a flashlight held to your eye. So the first thing you saw was like a blinding light and like a gun to your head. And he would just say like, put your hands in front of like your stomach. I'm going to tie them up. And then eventually, once he moved down to SoCal, he started to kill people. Like he was still breaking in. He was still committing rapes but he was breaking in and like bludgeoning people in their sleep what a positive note to Sir, leave you on i'm sorry plates. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna leave me wondering about the damn plates is honestly what you're gonna leave well me it was that was his alarm system because if he would tie up a husband and he was then planning to rape like his wife or girlfriend he could ensure the husband wasn't going to get up and like try to like attack him yeah. because if he heard the plates rattle that was his his like tell Creepers, have a wonderful and relaxing Friday. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's so funny? I was going to say, Creepers, thank you always for, like, letting us... Because I feel like our our episodes can be... They're so varied with the humor or the mood. They are. And, like, this was a... This is a dark one. And... Yeah, we found the pockets of levity. They're always for it, though. No, they're they're always... Yeah, they... You guys just go on a roller coaster ride with us all the time, seriously. We put you through some emotional turmoil. (laughs) (laughs) i'm also i should show you this before i leave you i'm playing with this this is something one of the magicians gave to me last night stop actually he gave it to my friend candace but she gave it it to me two rubber bands yeah he had two separate rubber bands and then literally just squished them together they're linked how how is this possible it's a rubber band inside of you can't get them apart you can't you can't find the the little latch what little latch it's a rubber band baby (laughs) (laughs) there ain't no latch you said but are you saying that he took two separate rubber bands and then he went and linked them together? Yeah. yeah. There's got to be a trick. Explain it. I'd like to see it. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Can we do this live? I'm going to Google <laughs> magic trick with rubber bands. How do they come unlo- unlocked? My thought is that it was a sleight of hand thing. So I think he had two separate rubber bands and he had this and it's like a trick like rubber band set. Okay. And then I think like it was just hands were super quick. There was one trick one of the magicians did. When they put stuff in, like, your wallets and stuff like that, that's crazy. Like, he would be like, pick your card. He's like, sign it. And he's like, like write your name on the card. He puts it back in the deck. He's just like, 
shuffling, shuffling. And then he's like, remember that shrimp that was on the table? And everyone's like, yeah. And he's like, it's on your shoulder now. And we're like, what? And then he's like, oh, and you should check your wallet too. You open your wallet. Your signed card is tucked into like where your license is. Like crazy stuff was going on around me. Sorcery. Witchcraft. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I just clicked a link for best rubber band linking trick revealed and it's a youtube video and the beginning of the video starts with like magic music and it went on full volume blast my fitbit i'm looking at it right now my heart rate is like 120 no i did see your face like gloss over for a second you kind of became disconnected from the room where you were your eyes just widened and you you had that like wendy williams stare for a second <laughs> I, I almost Wendy William passed out. Like it just and like <laughs> I just kept going on. Entirely. I just kept going on. <laughs> oh my god, he is showing how to do it though. How do I do it? How do is okay? Is this a real okay, thing I can on, separate, or do I have to? Is this a trick? We have to find a way. I Sue, you would love this place. Oh. Okay, he's showing. It looks like you almost do. It's like a what was that that thing called? It was like Johnny's ladder or something that you could do like with rubber bands where you like make them or like cat something. Okay, where you cats, like twist cat's them cradle. And it looks like cat's cradle. I'll, I'll say cat's cradle, baby. Y'all, creepers. It's been a long week. <laughs> but okay. let me tell you something, honey. I know like about cat's cradle. That. He's doing cat's cradle. <laughs> okay, he's doing something kind of similar. But he's twist. He's like twisting the rubber band in his thumb, and then somehow wrapping it with the other one. I, okay, and like, explain that. Like the physics of this. I'm showing you on camera <laughs> the physics. How? Yeah. How? Come on, because like, how can I thought I was like you can't twist that. It's just stuck in there. I don't, do you see what I'm saying? Like it's. I don't know. Yeah, I see. I see. This has to be a trick. There's no way that he like actually connected these. I can't. I won't believe that. Although one of the women who was like one of the illusionists, she was up there and she was doing this thing with like these two metal um, circles, I guess. I don't know where she they were like hard, but she would like link them constantly or like she would turn around and like they were both on her neck somehow. Like and they were like attached. It was crazy. The things I was seeing. It's so crazy to me because I still don't understand like where magicians go to like get mentored to like learn the trick. A lot of them talk, they like get privately mentored. So like a lot of like the working ones who work for like corporate events and they work in Vegas and they travel and stuff like they'll have mentees who like reach out, I guess, because there were in the basement is where they put some of their like developing magicians. They're like younger kids who are like in their 20s and like really good. Yeah. But like you can tell they're like working up and like building up their their presence with an audience. That's where we're going to be when we do a gig at the Magic Castle. That's right. Oh my God. Creep time one night only at the Magic Castle in the basement. <laughs> I would love it. <laughs> oh my God. If that could be like one of our first lives. Oh, I look forward to the day that we get to do a live show. I can't wait. What oh should our God. first city be? Me too. I can tell you our top cities. You could pick from those if you want. Okay. Well, let me like let me pull up our analytics and make sure most speak. I I know one of them. <laughs> hold on, let's see. Audience, what do you think our top city is? Just curious. 
Mm. You could start by I'm state. Gonna say, I'm going to say California. So it's a tie. California and Texas are our two top states for <gasps> listenership. And I knew we'd oh, get the I Texans. Love it, the Texans. <laughs> the Texans. Yes. <laughs> of our top. I want to see if this is consistent with what I have on um, Creep Time on TikTok. Our top cities in Texas are Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, and Austin, all the <gasps> cities that we toured. <laughs> Oh, my God. We have to go to back to Austin because I left it in shambles. So we need to go back. <laughs> we absolutely You and should. I left our mark on Austin, so we got to go back and leave another I think one. Austin left its mark on me. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I was, yeah, I was like done by the time. Oh, LA is our top city in California. Do Los Angeles, Sacramento, San Diego. What? Anything from Vegas? Anyone want us in Vegas? <laughs> I know. I want. I, I want to go to Vegas, baby. Yeah. Let me just. Let me see how far back that that might come up. Um. Oh, that's funny. The analytics. You can like click out from geographic location, and it like divides it by planet. That's fun. <laughs> by planet. It's like a joke they put in their analytics system. They're oh, like, oh, oh. most of your listenership <laughs> is on Earth. Like. <laughs> 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 We're two percent on Mars. I know how funny and witty Spotify. Um, <laughs> North Carolina. Oh, we got some North Carolina listenership. Yeah. yeah, we got New York in there. Illinois is big for us. Chicago probably. Um, damn, where's Nevada? I'm scrolling. It's like it's like Tina Bar. <laughs> That's it. It's so Stevie f- Cooper listening. I know. Always. What is our least popular state? Let's see. Any guesses on that? I'm going to say the Iowans just don't have time for us. No, it's Vermont. It's Bernie Sanders. He doesn't have time. It's Bernie, it's Bernie oh my Sanders. God. Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm sick of them. <laughs> Our top city in Nevada, is it? Yeah, it's Vegas. Okay, so for anyone listening in Nevada, it's 71% of them are in Vegas. And then we got 9% in Reno. Hell yeah. That's for us, the Renos. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for like debriefing with me. I needed a little bit of like laughter after that yes. case. Thank you. And thank you to the creepers again for listening. Guys, we're going to be back next week with another episode. And for now, we will say goodbye <laughs> and good luck. <laughs> that should be on merch. <laughs> goodbye <laughs> and good luck. We got to, we're going to do that next episode. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye, creepers. <laughs>